Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm John, one of the pastors at Cornerstone, um, and we're glad to have each of you here today. Um, Let's pray, and we'll get right into God's Word. Father, we come to you right now, and we thank you that you truly are um, our source of peace, Father. Um, Lord, it's you, not answers, Father. It's possible to have answers without peace, and it's possible to have peace without answers, Father. But if we have you, then we have that peace, Lord. Uh, God, I pray that you would make your word plain, that it would jump off the page and Jesus would seem glorious. Father, I pray for all of our friends in here that um, don't know you or have stayed far from you because they're frustrated with how life has turned out. God, I pray that as we yeah, preach through your word, I pray that as your word jumps off of the page, um, that it would be clear that you're a God that both loves us and cares for us, and you are our strength and our refuge in times of trouble. So, Lord, anybody in here that has a troubled soul, would you replace it with a peaceful one today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I love math, right? That sounds like a nerd thing to uh, say, but um, in a former life prior to becoming a pastor, uh, I was a math teacher for three years, and I loved it because, uh, one, I didn't teach that, like, hard math that has letters and all that stuff in it. Uh, I taught the kind of simple, ordinary math that provided answers. The input matched the output, and I liked that. It was neat. It was tidy. It was predictable, right? Yeah, I like life that works, and that when things go bad, I know how the problem's going to get solved. Whenever I buy anything, the first thing that I look for is the return policy, right? I want to know if things go bad that I don't have to sit on the phone and listen to scripted sympathy. I'm so sorry that you went through this. Is there anything that we can do? I get how you feel. I I don't want to sit through that. I just want to say, it's broken. Give me a new one, please. I like answers. I like things that work. You may not love math like I do, but you love formulas. You like it when life just works out. We love answers because answers tend to give us the sense of peace that we want. Right? So think about all of life. We all look for people that will provide us the answers to be able to make sure that life works out. If you want to advance in business. You seek after a business mentor. You want to make sure that there's somebody that can help you out. Or you may uh, pursue a life coach, whatever they do or that means. You, you want that to be able to help you work through life. We spend our time trying to find out the answers to injustices that go on in the world. Why are things this way? If we can find out what's wrong, then we can fix it. We want answers. Religion, for the most part, is all about this, right? Pick one or pick two, both, both, both Hinduism and Buddhism, both believe in this thing called karma, where it's, it's this way or this system that explains the world that you live in or the life that you have. Your output matches your input. If you do good things, then you're going to get good back in return. If you do bad things, then you're going to get bad in return. Everybody's trying to find answers because answers seem to be the sense of peace or the source of our peace. Even Christianity, I think sometimes we can come to it wrongly and view the Bible as if it's just God's instruction manual to have a good life. Do this, do this, tithe, come to church, do all of these good things, and life will turn out well for you. Until it doesn't. And for all of us, we find ourselves in a place where sooner or later, whatever formula for life that you ascribe to, it breaks down. 
it leaves us feeling like we've gotten on skates for the first time, just off balance. And what we do is we overcompensate, right? And so here's what takes place. We're pendulum swingers. And so what goes on is this, that if we believe that in, if all the good things that we do in life is going to, to, to uh, produce the output that we want, and when life doesn't work out, I think that the first way that we can swing the pendulum is by just trying to grind it out. And we can torture ourselves by saying, life didn't work out. Marriage didn't work out. I lost my job. I had a doctor's appointment that I wished was uneventful, and he sent me on my way. But instead, he said, we need to talk. I wished that the corporate ladder that I was trying to climb was an escalator, but instead I saw the escalator was broken and I had to scale the side of the building only to find out that I didn't meet a glass ceiling, but a concrete ceiling. And we step back and the first thing that we say is, what did I do wrong? What happened? And so we go back in our lives and we nitpick and we try to pay our tithes on time this month. We try to make sure that we really come to church. We try to make sure that we don't grumble or complain. And we get frustrated because we put in the right input, but the output doesn't come out like we hoped that it would. And it's only a matter of time before we burn out. And what we don't do is find balance. But what we do is we overcompensate. And we think, being good doesn't work, then why bother? You get frustrated, right? If nice guys finish last, then why do I spend so much time trying to be good? Look at the rest of the world. They do what they want and things work out fine for them. But then you start to try to do wrong and you find out, I don't get away with it. And so life just kind of feels, right? We constantly feel like we're off balance, the paradox of life. And so it causes us to start to doubt God's goodness, especially for those of us that know that God is in control. We get to a point where we really start to doubt that God is as good as he says he is because he seems to bless people that do wrong and we get bitter. But then we do right and we get blindsided by all the things that come our way. And it's, it forces us to question. And I want you to know that the question that you're forced into, the doubt that you're forced into, is actually a good thing. Not because you doubt God, but you're forced to reevaluate the assumptions that you've taken for granted. There's certain things that we just say or live by that aren't true at all, but we've always lived by that. Like, calling Kroger's, Kroger's, there is no S, it's singular, right? But there's certain things that life just goes on and we think that that's the way things work and the way that we live our lives is like that. We assume that the input will match the output and when it doesn't work, all right, y'all, we got to move past that, all right? We'll laugh and then we'll go on. But when life really doesn't work out, we're forced to say, how do we really find peace in a life that's full of paradoxes when life just really doesn't work out? How do we find peace? And for that, we come to God's word. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes um, chapter 7. And we're going to see three things as we come to this text. One, we're going to see life for what it's like. Two, we're going to know that uh, all the wisdom that we search for, we have uh, there is a ceiling to all of those things. In three, we're going to see where peace is found. Ecclesiastes is a book right now where the guy that wrote it um, is trying to examine how it is that we live life. But he doesn't tell us how to live life, our lives the same way that um, an Ikea instruction manual works, right? Do this and this and this and this, and then you'll get this. What he does is he takes a step back 
and he looks at life, and he looks at it intently, and it's out of that that he gives us the conclusions of life. What I want you to see, though, is he doesn't look and gaze intently at life the way that a middle schooler gazes at their crush and is infatuated and doesn't see what's wrong. He looks at life through the eyes of somebody that's been scorned by an ex. And so he looks intently at life, but he is not infatuated. There's times where he's infuriated, just mad and upset. So he's going to give us the real story. And in this section of the book, what he's trying to do is he's trying to help us to see the true colors of all of life. Worship of God is not as safe as you think that it is. There are roadblocks that lie along that path. Money is not as great as you think that it is. Adversity isn't as bad as you think that it is. And right here, what he's going to say is life is not as nice and neat as you think that it is. It's not a formula. And so the very first thing that we see here in this text is he wants us to see this. Life is a paradox. Avoid the extremes. Life is a paradox. Avoid the extremes. Don't swing the pendulum. The very first thing that you have to do is to admit that that's the case. Look here with me in verse 15. He says this. In my vain life, once again, as he describes his life, he'll use this word vain, meaningless, frustrating. In my frustrating life, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And the very first thing that he does is he admits that there is a problem that life doesn't add up. For a troubled soul, the first thing that has to be dealt with in order to move towards healing is moving past denial. It's the first stage of grief. I can't believe that they are gone. It's the first step in trying to move past an addiction. I don't really have a problem. The very first thing that you have to do is you have to move past denial. And what he does from the outset is say, things don't work out. There is a problem. Paradox. Things don't work as they should. It seems like that there's two truths that should be conflicting, but instead they both seem to be true. How is it that God is good and he runs the show, but the good die young? And that folks that while out or don't care about God's rules live long. And you see this in the Bible. Cain and Abel. Cain did wrong murdered his brother who did right. And do you know the rest of what we read about Cain? God sends him on his way. But Cain, Cain gets married. Cain has kids. Cain enjoys what it seems like a life that his brother didn't. Psalm 73, David, a man after God's own heart, who is a king, is frustrated at God because he's like, Yo, everywhere that I look, I see people that don't love you with lots of money and their life is easy and I love you when my life's hard. The world that we live in, we're constantly bombarded with the news of innocent girls that are snatched. And they don't even make the headline. Personally, in our own lives, we've seen ways that this has been true. Two years ago, um, I lost my brother, 32 years old, pastor, never touched a drug in his life. I may have heard him cuss one time um, in our whole lives, and he died suddenly in his car. My oldest brother... um, went through years dealing with 
substance abuse. In and out of rehab twice. He's married and he has five kids. So regardless of where that we look, you can deny it if you want to. But from the Bible, society at large, our own stories, we know that life is apparent. Things don't work out. And in light of that truth, here is his advice. Avoid the extremes. Don't swing the pendulum. Verse 16 says this. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That sounds weird, right? It seems like he's saying, don't be too good. Is that what he means? Does he mean, hey, it's okay to be saved, but don't be too saved. Yes. Got to throw in a cuss word every once in a while. <laughs> Got to slap somebody every once in a while just to let them know that you saved, but you're not that saved. <laughs> Is that what he means here? No, right? No, no, I don't think that that's what he means. Kurt, that's not what he means. There you go, that's not what he means here. On and on, the Bible, right? The words of Christ tell us that, that as he saved us, we're to be holy as he is, that we're constantly to pursue that standard. What does he mean here? I think we find out what he means by the question that he asks here at the end of verse 16. Why should you destroy yourself? Or this, why should you torture yourself? I think what he's trying to get us to do is not to be self-righteous in the sense where we think that righteousness is always met with an eternal or, or uh, a reward here in this life. Don't live as if if you put in the right input, you're going to get the right output because life doesn't work that way. And if you try to fit your good deeds into that formula, you're just going to come out frustrated and tortured because it's not going to work out. And Christians, you'll torture other people. You'll make them believe something about life that is not true. You cannot trace every suffering and heartache that we face in this life back to a sin that somebody did. Every miscarriage is not a result of something wrong that you did. Every spouse that leaves is not based on some wrong input that you put in. And I hope that those of you that are in here right now that find yourselves condemning yourselves as a result of the way that life turned out and you felt like I must have done something wrong, I want you to know that is not necessarily the case. And to live like that is torture. To troubleshoot your problems like that is torture. Um, like I said, I love math. So uh, back in the day when I grew up, they had those math books and at the back of the math book, they had the yeah. You know, you know, I thought it was great, and it was great, except for the assignments where the teacher said that you had to show your work. Then it's like, ah, well, I actually have to do the work, and now I can just check things in the back. Well, my wife knows when I run, like, face-to-face -face with a problem, sometimes I can get really, like, OCD. And so uh, I would sit there, and I loved math, and so I would do my math work. Hey, I'm being real transparent, y'all. So, yeah, I loved math, and I would do my math work, and I would turn to the back, and my answer wouldn't match up. And so I would go back, and I would work, and I would stay up all night and try to work. Well, not all night. Um, yeah, but, all right, and I would try to work, and I would work really, really hard, and I wouldn't get it. And then I would go to class the next day, and I would say, uh, I tried to work all of this stuff out, but my answers didn't match up to which the teacher would reply, oh, 
in the edition that we have here, um, they actually misprinted the answer in the back of the book. So you can do the right thing, but at the end of the day, it's not going to add up to that answer. The book is broken. That's the world that we live in right now. And if you live life like all the good things that you do are going to add up to a good outcome here and now, I want you to know that that's not the case and you'll torture yourself. Now, I say all of that with caution because if I've learned anything from the world that we live in, especially during this last presidential election cycle, we tend to think that to critique one way of life is to endorse the next way of life. And that's not the case at all. So he critiques this and says, yo, all right, this is not the right way. Life doesn't always work out. But the natural thing that takes place inside of us is to swing the pendulum and live as if nothing matters or there are no consequences to our action, that we replace being self-righteous with being self-indulgent. And these aren't places that, that we camp out. We have season passes to both of them, where we go in and out freely, sometimes within the same hour. So he, he goes here and says this, verse 17, but don't be... Overly wicked, neither be a fool. Here, why should you die before your time? What, what he says is life doesn't always work according to the formula that you've laid out for it, but that doesn't mean that the formula is never true. There are actual consequences to all of our actions. Sometimes you may get away with it, but that's the exception to the rule. That's not an example to be followed. There are people that have been functional crack addicts and have lived long lives. And then you have Len Bias, basketball star that folks, that some folks said were was, was greater than Michael Jordan. Tries it, and he dies. And what he's saying here is, while some people may get away with it, don't bet your future that you will. While you cannot trace suffering back to sin, there are times where you can trace your sin to the sufferings that it brings. And with a church this young in the city that we live in, I just do want to make this just very plain and very, very clear one of the amazing graces that God has provided us is the instruction that he gives in his word. One of the beautiful things that he does is he confines sex for the context of marriage and only for the context. So that you find yourself with somebody that you know and you trust and you love and you all can enjoy this intimacy together and it provides protection from certain things that you'll expose yourself to if you live as if none of the rules apply to you. Be very mindful how you steward God's gift of sex. There are very real consequences. And I say that because of the age of this church in the city that we live in. 18. It is good, right here, that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come away from both of them. 
Here's what he just means in all of that. He's saying, instead of finding yourself in the extremes, trying to live life according to a formula, realize that your fate is not in the hand of a formula. It's in the hand of your father. And God does not have to agree to play by the rules of a game that we invented. So what this is saying, live life in such a way where you're not blindsided by hard times. You know that God has the freedom to send those things. Know that your good deeds do not guarantee a good outcome in, 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 uh, in this life. That's not a cause for you to find fault with God. Still do those good things. But in the same vein, don't live as if our deeds in this life don't matter. That the one who fears God and knows that their fate is not in a formula, but in the hands of their father lives life successfully. Life is a paradox. Avoid the extremes. That when we avoid the extremes, it gives us balance. Not just in the way that we uh, live these lives before God, but it gives us balance in the way that we live our lives in the context of conflict with other people. Verse 19 and 20, he talks about wisdom is a good thing and we have need of it because nobody's perfect. And here's what he says about this balance, just a point of illustration, verse 21. Don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. This balance helps us to avoid these extremes, but this balance also keeps us from the type of hypocritical outrage that doesn't do well in fostering a sense of community. His, all his point is, is, is this. Raise your hand if you would be the first to volunteer for somebody to follow you around for the rest of your life and record everything that you say and play it at the most inopportune times. You wouldn't want that. So his point is, so when you find yourself in a place where you hear something that somebody has said that's, that's rubbed you the wrong way, don't be a hypocrite filled with all this righteous anger, but instead have a little bit of perspective. Listen, this is not meant to excuse sin that goes on. That's not the aim of this at all. This is just meant to provide the elbow room to ensure that we respond with patience that we respond with grace, and we respond with sympathy. So it's like this. Next time that you find yourself in a place where somebody has done something to offend you, it's not saying that you let it slide, but ask yourself two questions. One, have I done this or something like this to somebody else? And two, how do I wish that they responded to me? Not how did they, because then you can feel like, well, I got to pay them back, especially between spouses. No, you say, now, how do I wish that they would have responded to me? And in that sense, it's what I'm not saying is to be passive and to let things go, address it, but with both patience and grace. Balance. Life is a paradox. We get angry, fighting mad over people that do the things to us that we do to somebody else. Be patient. Gracious. Life is a paradox. We avoid the extremes. Now, that tells us that life is bad and what to do because life is bad. 
but it doesn't give us the answers that we think that we need for, for peace, right? We want answers. Answers give us peace. Verse 23, Solomon um, right, says this same thing, that he has this search. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. He said, I'm going to find the answer to why life is broken. And the conclusion that he comes to is, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? Here's what he says. I want answers to life because answers give peace. And I've looked for it, but there are none. And he goes on and he says, wait, wait. It's not that there are no, but I didn't find the answer that I searched for. How's he going to find peace if he doesn't find the answer? Just because you don't find what you are trying to look for, it doesn't mean that there's not value in what it is that you actually find. And that's what we'll see here. We'll see that our search for answers exposes a bigger problem, us. There's this book called How We Got to Now, um, and I'll explain what I mean by this. So this book, How We Got to Now, chronicles six uh, discoveries or innovations that changed the world as we know it. And the first chapter is all about glass. So when glass was first found for a few thousand years, people just used glass for containers. But then as they started to explore more and more of what glass could do, what they found out was that you could make glass clear, and if you bend it, it can serve as a magnifying glass. So mostly monks used this at the time, and they would slide this glass or words that were on the page and, and it would make the words bigger so that they, they could see. Uh, a few hundred, hundred years ago, there was a man that invented the printing press. And, and so it took place was for the first time books were broadcast to the masses. People that never read or were forced to read now had books in their hand. While folks were exploring glass and ways to use glass and books and the information that could come from books, do you know what one of the unintended consequences that they found as they were trying to explore the universe? They found out that now with books in folks' hands, people were farsighted. They couldn't read. They never had an occasion to realize they were farsighted before because they never had these books in their hand. And now, as a result of this invention that had nothing to do with discovering intricacies about people, a major flaw in them was exposed. What he does right here is he says, hey, I'm searching for answers and I don't find the answers that I searched for, but I did find a flaw, not just in me, but all of humanity that was exposed. Read with me, verse 25. I turned my heart, right here, to know and to search and to seek wisdom. So those three words, know, search, and seek, there's this intense search. He's trying to find why life turns out this way, why is it broken? What's the sense behind the paradoxes? Because if I can find that answer, I can find peace. And he says this, and the scheme of things. So he's trying to find out the scheme or the pattern. What lies behind life being as complex as it is? And to know wickedness and folly and the foolishness. That is madness in this book when he says, I, I try to search what's wise and what's foolish. That's just him saying, I looked at both sides of this coin. So he's on this search trying to find answers to get this sense of peace. And 26 says this, 
And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while uh, adding one thing to another to find that word again, the scheme of things, which was my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found it. I couldn't find it. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, these alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. If you're as confused as I was the first time that I read that, let me explain it to you. Solomon is on a search for wisdom. And then in 26, it seems like he takes this detour and <laughs> in a, it seems like a chauvinistic and a misogynistic way just kind of brings up some girl that like scorned them bad. Like, y'all, I was trying to find wisdom, but then I thought about that girl. And I just, right... <laughs> This is not, right, this is not, this is not him demeaning women. The Bible doesn't do that. And I'm saying all of this because I read so much stuff this past week and eight different scholars had 16 ways to think of this, right? So it's confusing, but I don't think that it's the main point of this, but I am just going to give you all this, this is free. When the Bible talks about women, it doesn't view them as a lesser class. In ancient Near East religious literature, the Bible is one of the only books that gives so much attention to the creation of women. So it's not just an afterthought, they're not just made here to serve man, but God puts the man to sleep. And while God made man from, from dirt, God takes a rib out of his side and he makes her and he forms her. Paul is going to say this. The defining event of Christianity, Christ giving his life for his church, Paul says, all right, if you want to be married, men, this is the baseline of what it is that you should do. You should serve him. Peter goes on to say, men... If you don't treat your wives well, then don't bother praying. God ain't going to hear those prayers until you treat your wife. The Bible is not this chauvinistic, misogynistic book that is demeaning women, and that's not what he does here. I think it's best to let the context define what this means. He's in a search for wisdom, and what he does is he brings up a woman that lays this trap, Proverbs 9, Proverbs time and again is going to personify wisdom and folly as women. So Proverbs 9, what that does is it starts off and it says, hey, wisdom is like a wise woman that calls out from the streets to people that don't know which way to go. Come, let me tell you which way to go. But then in 913, it says this. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. So she's convincing, but she don't know nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she said, stolen water is sweet and bread is eaten in, sec in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So it places this folly, this, wis this worldly wisdom that would oversimplify the solutions to life to provide answers just to lure folks into depth, it seems like that that's what he says here. On my search towards wisdom, what I found was that 
there's somebody else, there's something else that lures me away, that brings me towards there. And I think that that's plain in the conclusion that he gets, verse 29, right? He says this, all right, I'm, I'm trying to find the scheme of things. I'm trying to find what makes sense. I give all of this to try to find the scheme of things. And here's what I found. See, this alone I have found. He didn't find what he was trying to look for, but this is what he found, that God made man upright, but they have sought many schemes. God made man good. God set this world to work in an order. Don't eat and you'll live. Eat and you'll die. God made man upright. God set things good. But here's what he learned about man from the first man who had God but didn't have an answer to the restriction that God placed. He believed the lie of Satan that said, here's something better than God. Answers. God made you upright. That's fine. But there's some other way that you can find good. And so what he says is, yo, yo, I found that God was good and God did good, but that didn't stop man from turning his back on God. And we see that in Adam and Eve. We see it in the story of the prodigal son where the father accepts the son who turned his back on him and came back and throws this party. And do you know what takes place on the outside of this party? The only person outside is the son that did good, that obeyed. And, and his dad comes out and says, why are you outside? We're rejoicing. You can be with us. And he stands out there and he says, I don't want to rejoice. I want answers. Here, I've spent my life and I did good. I worked according to the formula, but you didn't give me what I wanted. And this son, as a result of not getting what he wants, distances himself from the very presence of a loving father. And this is the same thing that happens with all of us when we find ourselves in a place where life really doesn't work out. We, we say, God, I've done good. You haven't lived up to your end of the bargain. I was faithful to my spouse. They were unfaithful to me. I want answers. I did everything right. And we couldn't have kids. And tons of folks that didn't have, didn't do things right, they have kids. God, I don't want you. I want answers. And so he says, in searching for wisdom, what he found out was that the human heart longs for a formula. They don't want a father. They don't want their fate to be held in the hands of somebody else. They want their own thing. They're schemers. They want to work things out. And here's what I want you to know. Having answers by themselves are never the way to peace. People that turn their back on God, all of us that have turned our backs on God, the judgment that we should get is an eternity away from God. Hell. And do you know what hell is full of? Answers. Answers about God's power. Answers about the holiness of God. Answers about the sovereignty of God. Answers about the righteous judgment of God. And you can have those answers, but you'll have a troubled soul for eternity. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Is that our pursuit of Christ, not our pursuit of answers, is the only way to find peace in the midst of the paradoxes of life. You go back through this text and in verse 18 and 26, the only hope that's presented there is this, is this fear of God. 
verse 26, and I find that the one who pleases God escapes her. If we are ever going to find peace in this life, it's not going to come through answers, but it's going to come as our pursuits are directed Godward. And what that means is this, especially for those of us that live on this side of the cross, that on this side of the cross, we see the perfect nature of God revealed in the person of Jesus. And it's only as we embrace Christ that we can really gain a sense of peace as we embrace the paradoxes of life. And I say it because this, Jesus is the lens that cures us of our nearsightedness. You want to talk about a paradox. And what you'll find is this. God uses what was our fault, this broken world, to reveal something beautiful about himself. Jesus was the only righteous man that walked the, the, the face of this earth. So when we talk about why do bad things happen to good people, they don't. But it did happen to one person that was really good. Jesus was good, righteous. He was the only one that put in all of the right inputs. And do you know what he got? Death. Jesus was the righteous man that died young. Do you know what all of us got? We were the wicked people that have had our lives prolonged. If we really want a formula, not if, you don't want a formula. The only reason that we are still breathing right now, the only reason why at our first sin, God didn't completely destroy us is because of his grace. Because this paradox is actually a good thing in that our lives have been prolonged enough to experience the grace of Jesus Christ in the cross. God does to him what he should have done to us so that we get from God what Jesus should have got from God. That's life. And our fate is not in our own hands, and that's something to rejoice in. Our fate is in his hands. St. Augustine says of the book of Job that it's this, it's better to have God without answers than to have answers without God. And if we really believe this to be true, I think that the main thing that this does is it provides us perspective in the midst of a hard life. And it reminds us that our peace is never contingent on the circumstances that we get. That we don't have to loathe the paradox of this life, but because of what Christ has done for us to pay for our sin and to bring us back into relationship with God, we get to lean into those things circumstances, hard times, when we're mistreated for the good things that we do, when we do right and we don't get what we hoped for, First Peter says that gives us cause to rejoice because the world treats us like it treated Christ and we can know that we have some solidarity with Jesus. Don't let the hard times keep you from God. Don't let the fact that you didn't get what you hoped for make you turn your back on God. That's a way that God wants to bring you to himself for you to know him better. Don't let it keep you from hope. There is one day that God will set things right and things will work as they should. That day is not today, so in the meantime, we're patient. Looking at life, through the lens of what Christ did for us, do you know what else it does? It gives us perspective, not just how we look at our own life and our own heart, but it gives us perspective to rejoice God and uh, to rejoice in the Lord and how we look at the whole world. 
and, and that's this, that we can see God's kindness in both. So my brother Sam, who passed two years ago, because he knew the Lord, as hard as it is to let him go, as frustrating as, as it is at times, I can sit back and I can be reminded, Lord, I don't have to be blindsided by things like that that take place. Lord, I can bless you because you've shown your kindness and that in as much as life on this earth is a good thing, eternal life on this earth the way that it is would be more of a curse than a good thing. There's things that God had freedom from. And so I'm not blindsided when things like that come my way. And then in the same vein, I'm not bitter when the wicked's life is prolonged. So I get to look back and I get to look at my older brother who had years of substance abuse, who did many things in his life where he should have died and it's because the Lord prolonged his life it's because God showed him great kindness in the midst of his sin that now he's walking with the Lord. And now he gets to grow his kids and raise his kids up. And now he gets to testify not just of the uh, righteousness and justice of God, but he gets to testify to the kindness of God in allowing him to prolong. And so there's not a bitterness inside, that as we look at a world that seems like they're prospering, when they don't do the wrong thing, we don't get bitter and call on God to rain down his judgment. We get broken and remember that we too were in the same place, and we long for God to grip their hearts, and we pray. That's why we spend so much time here praying. That's why each month we gather and we pray for the same thing, salvation and conversion, so that people would meet the Lord. And all this comes as a result of realizing our peace doesn't come from answers. Our peace from, comes from a God who reveals himself, even in the broken paradoxes of this life that we live. So let's not be blindsided when things don't add up or be bitter when they don't add up in somebody else's favor. Let's spend our time pleading that the same God that was kind to us would be kind to them. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful that even with not a lot of application or things to do, that your word can lift us out of despair and frustration and brokenness, Father. Remind us that even though life doesn't add up, um, you've proved your faithfulness. Help us to run to you regardless of what life throws our way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.